Hello, I'm John Dinsdale, and this is my show. Welcome to the Christmas edition. We're going to be talking about the wonderful world of Christmas death matches. I can tell you about the wonders of Neil Diamond Cutter being buried under a barbed wire Christmas tree. Nick Gage fighting, I think it was Green Ant, in a GCW show. Again, with barbed wire Christmas tree. Oh. John? Yeah? Get out my chair. Fine. It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny and this is my show. And today is not a great day, I'll be honest. My dad passed away on Monday. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, that has kind of dampened my Christmas spirit. I love my dad very much, and he's not with us anymore. Um, but I am the kind of person that needs to be kept busy and to do things, otherwise I get very sad indeed. And I understand all of you people who are suffering in the same way I am at the moment, and I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. And I hope we can give you an hour or so's entertainment on a Christmas bank holiday morning uh, to keep our usual schedules together. And to join me at the crack of early, late afternoon is Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you, sir? Um, half asleep. I I dragged myself out of bed about half an hour ago. <laughs> as, as you said, it, it's the crack of dawn, so... <laughs> the crack of early evening. <laughs> I'd normally be having me tea at this point. Anywho, uh, today we have a playlist for you. As I organized a playlist. Now, a couple of years, me and years ago, me and Christy had a look at the best New Year's matches that I could find. And I've always wanted to do a Christmas special show where we look at Christmas shows from the past. So I did a playlist of Christmas shows. Or more accurately, wrestling shows from December. This is the, the territories go Yule. Or in some cases, not particularly Yule. And speaking of which, we're going to start in Georgia. Georgia, Georgia, oh, Georgia, indeed. So this is the Georgia Championship Wrestling Show, much famed, much loved, big business in the late 1970s with Paul Jones as the promoter and then Ollie Anderson. And by gum, you can't tell Ollie Anderson's involved in this at all, can you, John? <laughs> um, not really. It is... It's 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 an old school TV wrestling show. It's exactly where you expect it to be. It was the forerunner to WCW Saturday Night. It was the forerunner to the big flagship shows. It was the forerunner to, you know, five forty on a Saturday afternoon or wherever it was on the Superstation. This was Georgia Championship Wrestling, and it has some big names, and it's a big territory. However, nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> absolutely. It's it's the two the two shows on this particular tape are stitched together from I think it's the eighth and the fifteenth of December. No one mentions Christmas at all. Like it's as if nothing else in the world is happening except professional wrestling. Yeah, which is weird. And it's like I I mean both me and you have probably kind of grated against pop culture stuff in WWE. But not acknowledging Christmas? Bold that seems move. a bit odd. So, sorry? Bold move. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So it's it's a traditional TV wrestling show. So it's the small studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the opening match, well, first of all, you have an interview with Bill Eady by the great, great Gordon Soley, which is clearly the most coherent thing in the entire show. Because Gordon Soley is the one of, if not the greatest professional wrestling commentators of all time, the dean of pro wrestling, and Bill Eady, uh, masked superstar as he was then, the Georgia state champion, went on to be Demolition Axe, one of the great talkers of the 1980s. And it's a great segment, really. It does what it's supposed to do. Would you agree, John? Yeah, as you said, both men can string a sentence together, which is more than can be said later down the line. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it, really. I do love Gordon Soley. If you, this is my favourite Gordon Soley story, um, just because it is. When he was working for WCW, I think it may have just been the NWA, and he was still at Georgia Championship Wrestling, and he was commentating for uh, Crockett's as well, and he was, in, he was in Florida as well. And he got the call from Vince McMahon one night while sat around the family dinner table. Um, and uh, he, got the, he got the phone call. We want you to come work for the WWE. And he was like, his, his son was in the room. He's like, yeah, 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 okay. And um, he put the phone down and his son said, who's that? He said, Vince McMahon. He said, he wants me to go work for the WWE. Or WWF as it would be then. And uh, his son says what are you going to do dad and Gordon took a long drag on his cigarette put it out and said I ain't wearing a fucking tuxedo and that was that <laughs> I was like yeah there you go that, that, there, there you go that's Gordon um, and yeah so the first match is the Yankee versus the not quite dirty Dick Slater what do you think of this match John this was perfectly fine. It was very traditional out-of-town heel versus out-of-town yet still beloved face. And yeah, Dick Slater was Dick Slater. Yes, not dirty Dick Slater, which seems like... The, and, and it has got the immortal line, Dick Slater has a love of one-on-one -on -one contact. This is like, whoo, don't we all, Gordon? Um, but yes. Wins with a rather nifty roll-up in a perfectly standard job match of the 1970s. Uh, the Yankee was quite an entertaining heel, though I don't understand why you would say you were a Yankee when you came from San Francisco when, oh, if you're making shit up, then surely say you're from New York. <laughs> it's, there's a few holes in the logic of this uh, video. Yes. Next up, we have Masked Superstar, the Georgia State champion, Against Mike Davis, the uh, soon-to-be rock and roll RPM Mike Davis, um, and Mike Davis was a pretty good wrestler actually. He did really well in Florida and the USWA, uh, and to be fair, so was Bill Eady. This was pre-demolition and pre-heart trouble, so he was a bit. He, he actually looks bigger than he did in his heyday, really. I think, and he was actually a pretty good technical wrestler. What's your thoughts on on this? Yeah, this was perfectly serviceable. I did like the fact that um, everyone leapt out of their seat for two drop kicks in a row. That that really <laughs> sort of shows how um, different the times are now. But it was how yeah. far this is gone. Yeah, <laughs> this 
Yeah. It was a perfectly good match. I actually quite enjoyed it. Yeah. No, and it's I, what I like about it is it's solid storytelling. The, the Dick Slater matches, he's a very good wrestler who's technically very gifted. The Bill Eady matches, he's a cocky heel who gets caught out by the youngster and nearly gets beat. You know, it's that old, but doesn't get beat, but, you know, he, he has to put more effort in than he's actually wanting to. Yeah, you saw that um, Superstar was actually getting frustrated about getting hit. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts and bolts professional wrestling of a base level. But it doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, it's rather well done. Um, uh, Billy wins with the Cobra Clutch in the end. Uh, and then pro- things... That was a really good-looking Cobra Clutch. Someone it who was. actually knew how to apply it. Yeah. And then we move on to a segment featuring Gorgeous George Jr. Um, Gorgeous George Sr. must be spinning in his grave at this point. Gorgeous George Jr. is a manager, a verbal mouthpiece for two wrestlers who don't speak English very well. But neither does Gorgeous George Jr. Your thoughts, John? Ah. <sighs> Aside from the sort of minor casual racism of the hey, I've got two Japanese guys when they guess what? They know martial arts. They're martial arts experts. It was it was just embarrassing watching gorgeous George Jr. fail to like say the most basic of sentences. Like, hey, guess what? I've got these two guys with me. They're going into a martial arts match. Winner is staying on. This didn't happen. They had separate <laughs> matches. You lied. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, pointless the, segment. To be fair, the two wrestlers in question were Killer Khan, actually one of Giant Baba's proteges, and Professor Toru Tanaka, Tanaka rather, uh, former WWWF tag team champion with Mr. Fuji. And the point was that they were supposed to wrestle each other at the Atlanta Auditorium, I think, the following Friday night. And for $1,000, winners would be $1,000 and they get Gorgeous George Jr. as their manager. I'm not sure you want to win that match, given those stipulations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you've uh, got two pretty well-renowned wrestlers of the time and you're slapping them with this gimmick? It, it just seems a bit tasteless. Yes. Again, that, this that, this the... might just be the 2020 effect. Obviously, we're yes, a that... lot more conscious of this stuff now. We are, but I mean, as well, later in the show, <laughs> they each have an individual squash match and show no martial arts prowess whatsoever. So, you know, because they're two fairly basic what are you Japanese. About? Stars, Clawing so... someone in the stomach is peak martial arts. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure if you tried doing that in any MMA, any MMA gym anywhere in the world, they'd laugh you out the building. I don't know, Steven Seagal might try it. He wants to be a master of martial arts. It looks like something he'd do. Yeah. Oh, Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal, actually, seriously, is one of the world's most renowned blues historians and collects electric guitars. He owns the Albert King guitar collection, believe it or not. Also completely mental. Oh, yeah. Lives in Russia at the behest of Vladimir Putin. But, you know, but is a bit mental. Bizarre, really. Anyway, we move on, and it's the actual old-school territory interview segment segments to get you into Atlanta City Auditorium on the Friday night. 
And it was nice watching this and doing like local promos because you don't get to see that nowadays, do you? Well, no, there's no travel. Because <laughs> no one wants to go see our shows anymore. No one can see our shows anymore. There is no such thing as our shows now. But that the promo was from the Russians. Um, and they were going up against the team of, I can't remember who one of the fellows was, but a very young Buzz Sawyer. I'm just going to turn the volume up to see if I can find out. Do you want to give your comments on this match? Um, again, it was pretty pretty good for what it was. You had like domineering Russian team and babyface team that were striking back fairly well. It was fairly balanced and pretty fun. It's... And you can just so, hear the audio. It's it's fine. Let's yeah, let the, let the just audio hear the video. Oh, it's difficult because I'm trying to find the right spot to find the person because I don't want to like you know not include them. That wouldn't be fair. But there's no match listings for this because it's Georgia wrestling in the '80s. They literally made wholesale wholesale wrestling at the time. There's things you forget like. At one point, WCW, which was one of the companies that came after Georgia Championship Wrestling and was had its roots in Georgia Championship Wrestling, used to take 13 weeks of TV like this in a go, in a row. You know, yes. that was a weekend. They would literally spend a week recording TV shows. I mean, technically, Impact have a similar strategy at the moment. They film like several weeks. Like up to twelve weeks of TV in a row. It's an effective yeah. method if you've only got a limited amount of time. And I mean, with territories, they'd probably be traveling quite a lot because they'd have to work in different places all the time. Like one it weekend was... you're in Georgia, and the next weekend you're in Dallas, the next weekend you're in uh, Florida. It's it was. It's also incredibly cheap. That's the big issue. Like if you take uh, six, uh, two months worth of shows, um, you can get things done and you're only paying the crew for two days instead of paying them a day every two weeks. So, yeah, that's the reason why you do it. It costs a lot less and you can spend the time editing and making it look good. It's better for production values, especially at this time. What I don't understand is they didn't put the camera on a platform so they're shooting up all the time. But... The production's not great, and it could be better. But again, it's it's the 1970s. It's actually not that bad. It's all two-camera shoot as well, because you've got one static camera, which isn't really that static because it's following people around, and one handheld. So it's it's not great, but you'd have thought a local TV production would be better at the time, I think. I feel like it's on par with the um, really old Japanese shows we watched not so long back. Yes, very much so. Except in uh, colour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Russians, as a tag team, this particular lineup of the Russians was uh, Ivan Koloff and Alex Smirnoff. Ah. Um, what are your thoughts on them two? I mean, they, they fit the role, right? They were big, vicious, angry Russians. Bold. Hmm? Bald. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is what it is. You, you've come to expect teams like that, sort of in the seventies, eighties, because we were still playing really heavily on like stereotypes, and 
here they are. They're just like, we're going to be the most stereotypical Russians to the point that one of them's named after a vodka brand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was a vodka brand at the time, but the second I heard Smirnoff, I'm like, oh, for f- Yeah. Um, I also have to point out, like, it's solid tag team wrestling. You know, it's worker body part. There's a lot of arm bars in this, and they're going after the arm all the time. Um, okay. I mean, it's all fundamentally technical wrestling. It's it's very old school. It's the sort of thing Jim Cornette probably wanks to before he goes to sleep. It's I bought by the my actual notes said Jim Cornette sex week. Um <laughs> But yeah, that's pretty much it. This is the kind of thing that like he, he would adore. And I can understand his point. It's absolute nuts and bolts, perfectly good wrestling. It's really good. Baby faces have got fire. It, it's it's awesome, but it is again. It's of its time. You can't necessarily you, well. You do the basic psychology of it now, but these are two big lumbering folks, and they're not the most exciting tag team to watch, are they? They're, they're not bad. They've got some cool moves and stuff, but it's a lot of stomp and kick and clothesline, stompy, kicky stuff. To be honest, if it wasn't for the sort of impact and sort of storytelling this this would all get very boring very quick yes of course Ivan Koloff as well knows how to work he's a former WWF heavyweight champion he beat Bruno Sammartino so he knew what he was doing not that he was heavyweight champion for long mind but <laughs> they wouldn't have given it they wouldn't have put the belt on him they wouldn't have, unless he was actual serious threat to Bruno so he made the guard and go silent that's his one claim, his major claim to fame in the wrestling business. There's also a lot of the heels picking up the baby faces as well and not pinning them straight off. Some of it's accidental, but a lot of it's actually on purpose. That's a very is... common trend amongst these videos. Yes. Like, it seemed like the really in thing to do around that time period is like, oh, ho, ho, you're not getting out with this yet. And then they get their ass kicked for another two minutes. <laughs> uh, then we move on to another promo segment I'm trying to figure out who's on that promo segment Ah, Tony Atlas That'd be the the the, the Tony Atlas then um, Yeah, the, the bodybuilding tournament that um, Soli tries to ask a couple of extra questions about and Atlas as you say, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going down to the YMCA to do a, yeah, it's like, well, yeah, okay, then no, well, it's highly likely there would have been a weightlifting contest at the YMCA. I, I can buy that, but, but I'm after a... It's Trump rallies. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we have a promo from Mr. Wrestling 2, um, which was quite interesting. I've never seen Mr. Wrestling 2 wrestle. I've never seen video of him, though he has quite a heavy wrestler re- reputation. He of the million-dollar knee lift. And that's pretty much all I can tell you about him. But um, yeah, he 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 was Mister Wrestling too, and, and he, he was there. To fight a clone of himself. Yes, yes, he did. That that which is interesting, to be fair. Um, and then we we had more gorgeous George Junior for reasons best known to themselves, as Killer Khan went on to demolish some poor jobber. Oh, it was Mike Davis again. Yeah, I was going to say it was Mike. It was the. Uh... Mike Davis and one of the guys from the tag match, I think. Yes. Just, yeah. Just, you had your regular job, and they just got killed on a daily basis. <laughs> like, Buzz Sawyer ended up being, so I say Buzz Sawyer ended up being one of the most vicious wrestlers I ever saw. 
actually. I wonder why. Because um, he got beat up in, in so many times. Him and Mad Mark Lewin were a tag team. Um, they wrestled the Bushwhackers on the Bushwhackers debut in WCW, and the Bushwhackers renegotiated the contract very quickly afterwards because they said, we're not doing that again. Because um, they were apparently into their bad habits and incredibly vicious. Um, and Buzz Sawyer used to have a finisher against job guys. He, like, literally 10 years later, there used to be a job guy called Mike Scott who ended up being a referee for WCW. And it happened not long after. Buzz Sawyer power slam, took him up in a power slam, walked up to the second rope and just dropped him on the the hook where the ring connects to the post, stomach first. Oof. And that was from a great height. That was his finisher. And they just kind of like pulled him back in the ring and the referee counted 10. Because what else are you going to do? <laughs> so yeah, so Killer Khan beats Mike Davis with the stomach claw, that known martial arts move. Wasn't that Tanaka? No, no, no. That, no, no Tanaka had the um, sleeper hold snap thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was, well, another Cobra clutch, really. Um, I'm not sure who he's wrestling. He looks like, um, he actually looks like Mike Graham. I doubt a big Mike Graham, but. I'm not but sure that the audio always had a habit of mumbling over names. So I'm there like, oh, this is, this is blub blub. I'm like, oh, cool, it's blub blub. I, I don't know who that is. Well done. Hang on, audio. Some poor said, it says LO on his tights. Larry, oh no. Let's say, let's go with that. <laughs> I mean, he'd certainly be saying, oh no, after the match. Yes. Tanaka was pretty good, though. He was what you wanted from a big monster heel, really, wasn't he? He was big, he was a monster, and he was a heel. And he or liked to swing you... his arms around. It, it was. Yes. He, yeah. he was the, the sort of. God, this is going to sound so stereotypical. He was the kaiju type of wrestler you wanted. Yes. Where they were literally just big, stompy, throw you around and destroy buildings. Probably not the last yeah. bit. But yeah, it, there he is. No selling punches to the throat, which which will get you over very quickly. And a talking to in the back, if he would have done to anyone else but a jobber. Um, but yeah, this is really weird as well. No one seems to be able to run the ropes cleanly. But I guess it was, a, it was an art form that had only kind of just become really, really popular. I suppose. Well, they've been running the ropes since the 50s, but... I kind of laughed when um, Tanaka threw Ono at the um, <laughs> ropes and he just sort of collapses instead of like either falling out or bouncing off. He's just like, ow, fell over. <laughs> yes. Tanaka won with... Sorry, Karen. I couldn't tell if it was intentional or not because both guys uh, sort of paused for a moment to sort of like, shit. No, I think it was just um, just a bit of a mess. <laughs> and then you have a promo from Tommy Rich. Well, you have another promo from Gorgeous Josh Jr. Three, but well, it's two he shows stitched together. commentary. So. Yeah. Why? Tommy Rich, though, literally the hottest baby face in North America at the time. Tommy Rich in Atlanta could do no wrong. And you kind of get the impression why. He's a young, good-looking guy. He's got a lot of fire as a babyface wrestler. And look at the heels he's got to work with. This is actually a pretty badass crew, isn't it? Yeah, they definitely had their um, share of stars. And you could definitely sort of 
again, you, you get why people are so fond of this time period. I imagine mm. if I had grown up in it and not come to watch it about 20 years past its prime, like, yeah, there's a lot to like here. It's just, I feel like I've been spoiled by modern day wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's nice to appreciate things that are a bit slower. And speaking of a bit slower, the last match of, or one of the last matches on the GCW taping is Austin Idol versus Chick Magnet. Chick Magnet being the possibly worst name for a wrestler ever. Austin Idol, though, is everything you want in your yeah. heel wrestling. For those yeah. of you who might know him, but he, he did those segments on NWA's YouTube show last year where he advertised his wrestling school um and did like a parody of wrestling school adverts but actually he's actually not far off that as a wrestling character either and he's just amazing i actually knew who austin idol was he's like you see who rick flair is you you've got idol to thank for that yeah he was was kind of the blueprint for a lot of the sort of i am better than you I am gorgeous. I will steal your ladies. I'm going to... Basically, that breed of heel seems to have emanated from Austin Idol. Yeah, I would say, like, Rick Rude as well, and stunning Steve Austin, not Stone Cold Steve Austin, the WCW, USWA Steve Austin, was very much influenced by Austin Idol because he's got the same haircut, he's got the same body style, the same attitude as well. And a similar accent and promo style, too. If you listen to the Steve Austin promos in ECW, Superstar Steve Austin and Austin Idol, they're very influenced by each other. Well, influenced by Austin Idol, I would think. And it's it's Uh, great to see someone who's confident in what they're doing, doing it. Yes, they're doing it really, really well. Um, And then... Then they had the flare video package because, of course, the best view. Again, we're going back to fighting club. <laughs> <laughs> Just have one more thing on. Sorry, Karen. No, oh, sorry. I... There was a sound from downstairs. I was just wondering what it was. Okay. I would say one thing on Austin Idol. Steve Bowden, uh, who was who's the absolute authority, who was, again, sadly passed away earlier this year. and one of my friends in wrestling journalism who really could my wrestling journalism. But Scott was a manager in Memphis and he was a massive fan of Austin Idol. And there's a really great piece that Scott wrote about Austin Idol's babyface run in Memphis where he basically was missed his match. But he explained it all in a promo, but gave great detail about he had a, uh, he had a flat tire and he he had to there was only three lug nuts on the wheel, and he explained it all in such great detail that it was believable that he genuinely had a tire. It had to be very much in detail to be able to explain it. But because he could persuade an audience so well, he sold it really, really well. And it was you know that the angle was that he'd actually missed it because of a, a someone had interfered with his car, uh, but the fans hadn't quite trusted him yet, and it was important to have that little bit of doubt but still sell the story. And I think that's the thing with Austin Idol. He's just so good at selling everything. You want to buy what he's selling, whatever it is. I'm not sure what it is, but I want some. <laughs> yeah, this was by far and away the sort of highlight of this video. Just yeah. 
get into the Austin Idol, do what he does best. Yeah, which is beat up jobbers and stick on the Las Vegas leg lock. A figure four leg lock of some renown. And then, of course, you have a promo from the number one contender to the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship, Nature Boy Ric Flair, which was a generic NWA promo, but it was nice to see Idol and Flair side by side on TV, wasn't it? It was, and it was hilarious to sort of see Idol's reaction, sort of looking at this guy do the exact same thing as him with a different accent, and then to just take the piss out of the woman Flair brought into the video. (laughs) (laughs) It's hilarious what they could really get away with back then. Because, like, a lot of the stuff you see and a lot of the things they say you wouldn't get away with these days. It's like, sure, you've got heels that insult people's appearances and people's families and things like that, but I don't know, it just felt rougher and... I can't believe I'm going to fucking say this. Realer, when you're watching these old tapes, because they probably genuinely believed it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, when Gorgeous George isn't being casually racist, he's being homophobic. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> um, and then we get back to Austin Idol, and we finish this tape off with a, um, an in-depth interview with Dick Slater and Les Thatcher. For those of you who don't know who Les Thatcher is, Les Thatcher was a British wrestler. He spent most of his career in North America, what we used to call a carpenter. He was a guy who would build your house for you. He was a great technical wrestler. Um, I ended up catching on in the Georgia Territory and uh, was ended up being a commentator. Uh, still about, he used to run Heartland Championship Wrestling, which was a WWE development territory before the days of NXT. Um, and still has uh, a lot of trainees that have done very well in the business. But back then, he was just retired, and he was just doing commentary. And it's kind of a nice um, uh, piece of work, except for the fact that Dick Slater is not a full, you know, dirty Dick Slater, put bums in seats Dick Slater. He's still in the early stage of his career, and quite quite clearly reading things off the palm of his hand. And (laughs) also... He gets lost no end in this promo. He exp- he kind of like starts off. He, he's talking about uh, mass superstar and how he hates mass wrestlers, and then realised he's been tagging with Mister Wrestling Two for the last two months and has to d- dig himself out of a hole quite quickly. What amazes me is they kept it in. They could reshoot this anytime they wanted. I don't know. Maybe that's just the direction they wanted to take his character. Let Mister Wrestling Two do the talking since. Later, clearly, <laughs> and then to close the show out, we have the old man himself, Ollie Anderson, which I think who was who was road agent for the company or booker for the company at the time. He would later take over Georgia Championship Wrestling before selling it to Vince McMahon. Um, and he's at the peak of his gruff single wrestling point, um, and has quite the fantastic handlebar mustache and mutton chops set. Uh, but as his usual happy-go-lucky self. Isn't this the bit where they're like, and now we're coming to you with a match. Oh, wait, we're out of time. We're not coming to you with a match. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they run out of time. Because they've got Ray Candy, who was going to be um, somebody's tag team partner against the Russians. It would be, um, it'd be Dick Slater, I think. Yeah, Dick Slater's tag team partner against the Russians. 
he actually trained a lot of people. Me and Dara talked about him a few years later on that uh, Puerto Rico show we did because he was wrestling for uh, WWC in Puerto Rico. And he was quite handy, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, we didn't I get a chance to see him on this particular to, I'd have actually wanted to see that match. You know, yeah. rather than the 20-plus continuous bombardment of bloody interviews and stuff. It's like at the end of the I day, you're a wrestling show. Show the wrestling. I can actually tell you that uh, Ollie Anderson wasn't booking this show. And do you know how I worked that out? I'm guessing because of the way it finished. No, because there was at least three black people on this show. A <laughs> <laughs> true story. Uh, Anywho. Yes. Um... Yeah, there was. There was at least three black people on the show, so it definitely didn't involve Ollie Anderson. Um, right, then we move on. Because what's Christmas without Memphis wrestling, John? Uh, a normal Christmas for me. I think this is one yeah. of the first times I've watched Memphis wrestling. <laughs> to be honest, most of the stuff you watch is based on Memphis wrestling. Atsushi Anita's first title was the Southern Tag Team Championships. That that doesn't surprise me, considering <laughs> at one point they advertised a Texas death match, which we never get to see. Yeah, you know Fuchi, who was the only All Japan guy to stay in All Japan and not go to Noah. Really? It was him and yeah, it was him and Anita. The only guys who stayed with All Japan were Kawada and Fuchi, and Fuchi and Anita. I did read about this because I've just finished um, J Crowned Volume Two. Yes, as of high. Um, I've just done excellent a, a review on it. Really yeah, that's good. And Matt Sharpton's a really nice bloke. You should go and follow him on Twitter at Shining Wizard D, which is his company, Shining Wizard Designs, but a really good book. But yeah, Fuchi and Anita were tag team champions, the Southern tag team champions, which, funnily enough, is the first title defended on this particular show, or not defended, but shown on this particular show. Um, and he got a lot of his ideas from FMW from wrestling in Memphis. So this is kind of like the the seeds, if you will, of um, FMW and the, the, the violence of the 1990s. Um, two poor sods who are going to wrestle the assassins <laughs> in I, I a Memphis wrestling The assassins. I, I, the assassins, what do you specifically love about the assassins, John? They're just bastards. I, I love it. They're there to be bastards. It's just right. We we know what we're gonna do. We're gonna break arms. How are we gonna do that? Let's just build a match around the fact we're gonna break your arm. Yes. It's, it's, it's so classic, but it, it's just so fun how they go about doing it because they're both clearly really good wrestlers. They're working yep. with people like that are undersized compared to them, and they're just yeah, they know what they're doing. And you get a nice little compelling match out of them, and then you get the funniest promo ever from them later. <laughs> yes, this is um, this is uh, just fun. Is really what it is. I mean, the assassins were actually technically good wrestlers, but there's more arm bars in this um, than Kushida having a particularly arm barry week, um, and. It's it's good. It's really good. It's good, solid, basic psychology. Um, and it's a lot of fun to watch. And this was the Saturday morning show. 
So they used to do, you used to do this one, for, this was a freebie. You didn't get paid for this. <laughs> so you uh, ended up, um, you you basically did um, uh, the the loop through the week around Memphis and tennis, Memphis, around, around Tennessee and bits of, uh, uh, I'm, I can't remember where the other people were, but uh, you you did the bits and pieces and then, you did Saturday mornings as like a freebie. That was the whole idea, really. And um, so there was a lot of the big angles were set up on the Saturday morning show because obviously you've got the shows through the week. Um, people would see it on different days as well. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of fun. And the tag team was like were really good considering the fact that they were, um, you know, they were basically dealing with just arm bars and that's how they were winning the matches. But it tells such a good story, doesn't it? It does. It really does. It's it's quite a surprise. If you said to me these days, it's like, oh, we're going to have a match. It's entirely centered around arm bars. You'd probably see about 20 different types of arm breaker and things like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, he's just done a flipping elbow destroyer off the turnbook. Oh, God, I'm, I'm starting to sound like... I actually <laughs> want to see that now. Someone, in, someone invent, like, a flipping arm breaker i imagine it already exists but like what's that i don't know just just grab someone by the arm flip and land knee first on their arm or something i don't know the, 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 i don't know how it the laws of physics would apply to that sort of move <laughs> it can be done it's how you kind of get on with it really you know there was a couple of things in this where they were trying to escape arm bars and they got out of the way, just did the nick of time. But yeah, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, um, it, it's difficult to replicate in this day and age, I think, because uh, with that used to like MMA style presentation when it comes to arm submissions, thanks to people like Deanna Perazzo and Kushida and people like that, that you can't really do arm bars any other way, can you? Or Zack Sabre Jr., I suppose, as well. Plus, we're all just kind of aware at this point of how dangerous arm bars actually are. Oh, yeah. Like, I imagine um, back then, people were a bit, like... Obviously, kayfabe was a thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, we can't like, leave people in arm bars for very long. That's why you'll see about 20 of them. Whereas these days, it's usually a case of they'll fight out of it or they'll clasp the sort of hands together until, like, the last application... Where they'll either claw at the ropes or tap. Because and you, the, the Sorry, Karen. Because you can so easily break someone's elbow off an armpit. This is true. Um, they, Daniel Bryan, when he first started using YouTube, actually did a highlight tape of why he wanted to use hammerlocks because hammerlocks were awesome and we need more hammerlocks in wrestling. And he showed some MMA hammerlocks. There was a pride fight in the early 2000s where somebody like broke somebody's arm with a hammerlock and rather graphically um and you can use hammerlocks in self-defense and control and all sorts of reasons because essentially it's a double wrist lock you know um but um yeah they even used this is steve Steve regal and jerry bryant not that steve regal by the way the other steve regal who go on to be awa light heavyweight champion Um, i was disappointed when it wasn't that steve regal no no, it's definitely not that Steve Regal. It's the Steve Regal. Um, and refereed by Paul Morton, father of Ricky Morton. 
Mm. Foreshadowing. Anyway, uh, the Assassin Jet did actually finish the match with a cross arm breaker, which was very UWFI for 1979. Um, and then we hear from in a promo, I'm trying to find the promo, um, one of the people whose arms they've broken, which is Billy Robinson. Now, the odds of either of the assassins breaking Billy Robinson's arm intentionally are very slim because Billy would have taken their arms off and hit them with them. Um, so, because <laughs> Billy was like that. Uh, and Billy was, he was a really heartfelt promo. I was like, oh, it's Billy. He's sad. Um, and this was his first run in Memphis. He'd obviously been associated with the Minneapolis offices of the AWA which the Memphis office was working with, the Southern Tag Team Championships were actually AWA Tag Team Southern Championships. And Billy was a bit of an enforcer up in the AWA. He basically, about this, his job was to make sure no one hurt Vern Gagne, who was already a double-eyed bastard. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, this, I'm, I'm one of the best technical wrestlers and badass shooters in the world. And this is the guy that looks after me. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, Billy gives a promo, which is actually not a bad promo, is it? It's all right. And again, it's just like the gulf in our, like, how people can talk in Memphis, but just can't talk in Georgia. Now, Memphis is a, an interviews like based promotion, but equally, this is just there's such a gulf, isn't there? there yeah, the, the talking talent clearly went to Memphis. I, that's it for the most part. There's a promo we get to later down the line that legitimately makes no sense. And <laughs> I'm just literally screaming at my laptop saying, this makes no sense, will you stop saying this? As it went <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's, let's build the tension. The commentary on this is given by the one, the only, Dave Brown, who was described by Stately Wayne Manor, writer for... WrestleTalk magazine and formerly of Power Slam as, as dumb as a bunt bag of rocks. Um, uh, <laughs> so this this um, uh, this card then segues into film from the Memphis Coliseum and their famous Monday night shows, which featured the assassins, the Southern Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, wrestling the Gibson brothers. That would be Ricky Gibson and Robert Gibson. Laterly of the Rock and Roll Express. Um, so you actually get the invention of the Ricky to Robert in this era, but it's Robert to Ricky, not Ricky to Robert, because Robert was the hot young baby face who got his head kicked in. <laughs> so, uh, you know exactly that this was a good match just because, yeah. again, you just heard who was involved. Like, yes the ultimate masters of tag team wrestling. Yeah. And, you know, Ricky, Ricky Gibson was not a bad wrestler by any stretch of the imagination. He didn't have the national appeal of Robert. I don't think he was very much uh, kind of a Southern kind of style wrestler, whereas Robert had a bit more of an all-round approach and you could transfer him to different markets. But Ricky was a really believable promo. He cuts a promo on this and I'm actually, I was actually like, Whoa, because <laughs> he was talking about the assassins breaking arms that we can break arms too, and yeah, it's that it quiet. Came out of nowhere. 
Yeah, it's that quiet level of intensity that I kind of appreciate in a promo. You don't have to scream and shout all the time. If you say the right things at the right time in the right way, it can be just as effective. Um, you had the um, assassins talking about how breaking arms leads to depression, which had me in giggle fits because it started off as a fairly decent pro, and then all of a sudden it's like, we've broken him. He's not coming back the same. We've broken his spirit. And when his spirit's broken, he can't work. And when he can't work, it leads to depression. And you're just like, <laughs> you sound like a fucking guidance counselor. <laughs> and it's like, well, uh, where did your problem start? Well, you see, these two big, scary men in masks <laughs> broke my arm. And it's, it's just never been the same since. I... Oh. <laughs> the end of this match also saw a baby face turn for Dr. D, Dave Schultz. Um, who went in to try and stop the assassins beating up the Gibson brothers, and they attacked him. So he had a right crack at them um, and made sure the Gibson brothers were all right because he thought it was unfair. Uh, Dave Schultz famously was the person who beat somebody up uh, during the 2020 documentary um, and was promptly fired by Vince McMahon for being a jerk. Um, So, yeah. Uh, But he was a bit of a big deal in Memphis back in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and, of course, the babyfaces clear the ring. And because they've beaten the champions, there is, of course, a tag team championship in the offing on Christmas night in Memphis Coliseum, which doesn't get much bigger than that, does it, really? No, not really for the time. No, I mean, you have to understand, Memphis Coliseum was a 10,000-seat stadium, which they sold out every Monday. Every yeah, that's, Monday. that's kind of big by today's standards still. Yeah. You, you can't really... It, it's kind of unfathomable that literally the entire state was obsessed with wrestling. Like someone suggested that they, they pour a... Like when they were talking about the Tennessee Titans in football, um, the only reason why it worked in the late 90s and early 2000s is because wrestling had gone away. There was something about putting a football team in Memphis for, in the 1970s. And someone's jo- a wholly half-heartedly joke. Yeah, you'd have to put wrestling on at halftime, and no one would go. <laughs> so you know, this is this is an entire state obsessed with Sputnik Monroe and and Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and the Gibson brothers, and you know, it's it's ten thousand every Monday. That's why you can't get over fifty-two weeks of the year, ten thousand people every Monday in the Memphis Coliseum. And they're so into it. It's, it's unreal. It really is. They were doing that kind of business with a local TV show every Saturday morning. That's all they needed. And it's just so cool to watch in, in so many respects. In fact, you next have Buddy Wayne and The Avenger versus Rick Gibson and Robert Gibson in black and white because the video is really, really old. And you start to see why the Gibson brothers were so good because... That's what job matches are for, isn't it? It's to establish the big stars, and this was worth watching because you see actually how good Ricky and Robert were. Definitely. And it was just kind of funny watching um, the one not called the Avenger, whose name I've already forgotten. Buddy Wayne. Buddy Wayne, who's this big guy in just straight-up trunks and boots, sort of half the time just sort of walking around the ring, trying to look menacing. It's <laughs> <laughs> this is where someone's going to tell me he's like a proper accomplished wrestler I, I don't know I was just laughing because he seemed to be aware he was in a match that he wasn't really going to win and he just didn't care 
<laughs> and then you kind of get to the star of the show. And the star of the show is, of course, Jerry the King Lawler, Southern Heavyweight Champion. And he wrestles Ken Lucas. And they're in the middle of a big feud. And Lawler is just cutting a promo. We see the end of the Lawler-Lucas match at Memphis Coliseum. And the crowd is on fire for that. Lucas was kind of a journeyman wrestler. And Lawler alludes to that in his promo, saying he's not good enough. He doesn't deserve a world title shot. Just because he beat me once doesn't mean he can beat me again. And then things get interesting. Completely nonsensical line of, you can win the match or you can beat your opponent. Which is the exact same thing, you idiot. (laughs) Because you either win the match or you beat your opponent. That's the same thing. The way you beat your opponent is by winning the match. What you mean is beat up your opponent. (laughs) And that is what you're going for, but you're missing the key word there. (laughs) And acting like we're all going to expect to play along with this, which I probably did in the time, but I'm a semantic-picking asshole, and that (laughs) really annoyed me. Oh... Because he repeated it so many times. You also get the feeling like there's there's Jimmy Hart, literally one of the best talkers in pro wrestling history, and he stood there not saying anything. Which bothered me because he'd do a way better job of setting this up than Lawler would. Yeah, I I mean, there is some talent in, in Memphis at the time. I mean, like the first family has two managers, like the assistant manager is Jim Cornette. So you've got Lawler, you've got Jimmy Hart and Jim Cornette all in the same camp. Um, And then this is not long after this, Lawler breaks his leg and Jimmy Hart kicks him out of the first family. Uh, Because they say to him, someone says to him, but what about Jerry Lawler? And Jimmy Hart turned to the camera and said, they shoot horses, don't they? When they have a broken leg. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, woo! Yeah. So, but this is this is just this is just kind of what Memphis is. It's just it's very very simple personal based storylines, and it doesn't get more personally based than contracts. And the storyline is that Jerry Lawler is trying to renegotiate his contract, and he makes a lot of demands of the CWA. That's the the, the organization that runs Memphis as CWA. Sorry, he's CWA World Heavyweight Champion, not Southern Area Heavyweight Champion. There's a whole reason why he's CWA World Heavyweight Champion. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but basically, Jerry Jarrett, that's Jeff Jarrett's dad, um, who was the promoter and main booker at the time. Jarrett and Lawler used to do six months on, six months off. So Jarrett would do six months, Lawler would do six months. And they, they did that for years and years because the idea being after six months, you've kind of burnt out your ideas as booker. And one wasn't allowed to interfere with the other which is the reason why you tend to get the wacky, goofy ideas under Lawler and the more serious wrestling stuff under Jarrett. But um, uh, Lawler basically is outstayed his welcome in Memphis, and Jarrett isn't going to pay him any more money. Um, and to that end, he puts this world's champ- well, non-title match third from the start of the card and makes him do makes him get paid opening match money rather than main event money, which is a really interesting storyline. It's kind of um, kind of a non-kayfabe storyline back in the late 1970s. It's something you wouldn't see these days. Because no. 
again, we're kind of too in the loop about this stuff now. Yeah. You, you get it occasionally. I suppose, like, the... the um, uh, what's Rockstar Spud's slave Drake name? Maverick. <laughs> Drake Maverick, yeah. The Drake Maverick thing was kind of like this, but it was kind of an afterthought, and it, it, it was kind of done really badly, because it's like, here's a guy who would literally sell his soul to keep a job with the WWE, um, and you give him a contract as a consolation prize in a tournament? That doesn't make any sense. Um, after just makes firing you look him the Yes, after just makes you look like a bad employer. Um, but yeah, are, so... <laughs> and then Christmas night, the the they actually go through the 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 card on Christmas night, which sounds better than what we've watched. Well, it does, but this is what TV wrestling is about. The idea is to get you to go to the show, not to actually like you know, um, just watch wrestling on TV. They want ten thousand people at the at the Coliseum, and they want you to go. And they had an eighteen man battle royal um, as the opener. And then the two finalists of that were in the main event. Jerry Bryant versus Buddy Wayne. So the two jobbers who were early on are in the opening match. That should be long. <laughs> 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 um, and then Slim the Scuffling Hillbilly versus the Mighty Yankee. There's a, very, there's a, there's a theme coming on here of very base. <laughs> Paul Ellering. Yes. Slim the Scuffling Hillbilly is just the funniest name I've heard from a, from a wrestler in quite yes. some time. Paul Ellering versus the Grappler. The Grappler is currently the chief booker for World West Coast Championship Wrestling up in Portland. Paul Ellering's friggin' Paul Ellering. Rachel Ellering's dad, manager of the Legion of Doom. Gorgeous Road Warriors. Paul Ellering. Yes. Precious Paul Ellering. Uh, Southern Tag Team Champion, the, the Assassins versus Ricky and Robert Gibson. That was the, the, the third from the end. The tag team title match with this cracking feud that they've got going on is third from the end. Battle Royal Finals, no time limit, no DQ, no holds barred, no referee in the ring. How's that going to work? <laughs> what does the referee do? I mean, did, did Jerry Jarrett just explain it that like we, we wanted to make sure to win outside of the ring where they can't interfere with the action? Okay, that makes sense. So we're just going to count the pinfalls on the apron. I've been watching a lot of Chaka Pro at the moment, where like in between ma- like between matches, they'll switch refs who to one of the wrestlers who isn't wrestling anymore. And as part right. of the storyline, Emi Sakura has been messing with both Mesaruga and Balianaki's matches by being an incompetent ref. So, <laughs> yeah, um, keep them Oz, out of the ring so they can't ruin the match. Oz Academy, uh, Sikuki Gun, the, 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 the hometown team, who were all heels, had their own referee at one point, which was quite funny. Texas Death, Tojo Yamamoto and Sonny King versus Rick Morton. Yes, that Rick Morton and Big Red. And uh, so, for those, Sonny King was. A big draw in Memphis down the years. Tojo Yamamoto was there forever and uh, sadly passed away. He committed suicide in the early 90s. Um, Big Red was another big draw in Memphis as well. And of course, Ricky Morton was Ricky Morton. He's about 12 years old here. Uh, but this is the semi main event. This was, a, this was a Texas death match. So Texas death rules that were 
pinfall your opponent, they have a 10 count to stand up. And if they stand up in a ten, after a 10 count, um, the, the match goes on. The most famous Texas death match I ever heard of by this time period was uh, Mike DiBiase, Ted DiBiase's dad, once wrestled Terry Funk's dad, Dory Funk Sr., for four and a half hours in a Texas death match. There were no other matches on the card. The whole card was one match. I remember hearing about this. I've never tried to watch it because I don't know how you can drag a death match out for four and a half hours. You get one minute between falls, so you could go for a long time. And obviously the pace was a lot slower then. And if you're spending a lot of time like gouging each other, then it's doable. Um, but Ricky Morton and Big Red were quite the tag team. And Doji Yamamoto and uh, Sonny King were quite the heels. And it was kind of a lot of fun. And you could see why it ended up in a bit of a blood feud at the end. And you see a lot of how good Ricky Morton is even then. That baby face fire is really important to his uh, character, isn't it? Very much so. It's, it's again. It's just nice to see them before they were like massive stars. The sort yeah. of the little wheels turning, the pieces being put together. Yeah. Um, and then, chronologically speaking, we go to Dallas, Texas, the true masters of Christmas promotion. Because, again, in Memphis, they mentioned it was Christmas because the show was on Christmas Day. Oh, but and if you um, go... they had the little black and white promo with the guy next to a Christmas tree. Yes, yes, there you do. There were two videos because there was the Billy Robinson one at the start and then there was one before they started doing the bloody Lawler and the contract stuff, which was next yeah. to a Christmas tree. We got our first Christmas in iconography. That was Superstar Bill Dundee. By the way, as in Jamie Dundee's dad, um, and you know, friggin I don't think they me. mentioned his name when they were like, "Oh, and here's it," because they literally cut to it just after a I, segment and just I, before a match, and it was literally just sort of blended in there. I figured it out from listening to his accent when going. That sounds an awful lot more like New Zealand than Memphis to me. <laughs> so yes, it was super, superstar Bill Dundee. Um, yeah, he was building these. He was a massive, massive star in Memphis. You can't believe he was nearly as big as Lola. Lola versus Dundee, when one was face or heel, was it was just huge. And and they they built around those two guys for like ten years. And of course, they needed Dundee in case Lola got injured. And when Lola did get injured, Dundee was the big star. And it swapped back and forth. I meant to tell the story of the CWA title again, thanks to Scott Bowden. It was all to do with internal politics of the NWA um, and the AWA. So back in the 1970s, Jerry Lawler was the biggest drawer in the South. And um, he, Jerry, James, uh, Jerry, Jerry Jarrett wanted to petition the NWA board to have him as NWA World Heavyweight Champion. But the board weren't keen because he wasn't a shooter and didn't have a lot of shoot experience. So he couldn't really look after himself. Jarrett couldn't understand why, because he was a massive drum. It's like, don't you understand? He's going to make us lots of money. Wherever he goes, he's going to make a ton of money. Look, when I've, uh, he'd send him out on excursions, really, to prove his worth in Florida and Texas, and he would draw big money and have big programs. But the NWA weren't interested. Flair was their guy. Race was their guy. 
they had long-term plans for both of them and Dusty Rhodes to an extent as well. And though Flair wasn't a shooter, he could handle himself, when Harley Race could obviously always handle himself. And Lawler wasn't that popular amongst the other promoters. So after years and years of trying and getting Harley Race or Jack Briscoe or whoever to go down to Memphis and beat Lawler in a, or go to an hour time at draw or get lost, uh, you know, squib finishes are plenty. Uh, Jerry Jarrett got sick of it and then went and talked into negotiations with Nick Bockwinkle and the AWA and they switched allegiances to the AWA. And the idea of having a world championship in Memphis was that if they had a big championship in Memphis, first of all, it would crown Jerry Lawler as a world champion. That's what they thought. Though the CWA title wasn't really well recognized as a world championship in the same way that the other championships, even in territories, were. And, of course, the idea was to build up to a big series to not big Nick, Nick Bockwinkle. Of course, he talked to Vern Gagne, not Nick Bockwinkle, because Bockwinkle was the champion, but Gagne was the promoter. And that's where they got the two. And Billy Robinson came in as an established player uh, with the CWA title into Memphis. And the CWA championship actually had some big names involved in it. Uh, oh no, it was, it was superstar Billy Graham was the first person to hold it. Billy Robinson held it. Bobby Eaton held it. A very, very young Bobby Eaton held it. And of course, Jerry Lawler was one of the most famous uh, proponent of it. But the whole idea was to um, merge it with the AWA championship, which Lawler would do when he beat Kurt Hennig a couple of years down the line. I think it was 86, I think, 87. So that was the history of the CWA title, quickly. And one of his most famous matches, of course, would be against Kerry Von Erich, where they merged the world-class championship wrestling title with the AWA heavyweight championship. So let's go to Dallas, shall we? Where Christmas wrestling was done properly. Well, in the sense to... that they actually recognised the fact it was Christmas, put a little effort yes. into set design, and put on a massive show. Oh, yes. The old Reunion Arena, which was sold out standing room only for an actually locked down big card. And it opened with the Mongol Fishman and Wild Bill Irwin against, uh, I'm trying to remember who was on the other team. It was a pretty Chavo big team. Guerrero. Guerrero. Um, the uh, cards in the YouTube description. If you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I, I will look it up so save me going back and forth on the video. Thank you for that, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I would point out, I did really read this earlier. Um, the opening of the match was Genichira Tenru versus Johnny Mantel, and we didn't get to see it. There's a few matches in the description we don't get to see, and that annoys me, because I want to see Tenru in action. You're Against so... Johnny Mantel, yeah. Um, Jumbo Saruta's on the card as well, and you don't get to see that either. No, Vicky Carenza versus Lola Gonzalez for the Mexican Championship. That that sounds women. Yeah, not on <laughs> there. 1985. But yeah. 83. Yeah. So, yes, this opening match was Chavo Guerrero, uh, Jose Lothario, who of course trained Shawn Michaels, and gentleman Chris Adams from Stoke-on-Trent making an early appearance in his US career. And undoubtedly, straight hot off a plane where we've been on World of Sports Wrestling the previous Saturday afternoon. Because um, me and Al, when me and Alex did the um, 
retrospective on Mark Rocco, there was one of those matches on that playlist. I'm sure it was 83 where Chris Adams was wrestling Mark Rocco. And they had very matched styles. This was a fun little opener, and it was a very Lucha Libre little opener with a lot of technical bits and pieces, which you wouldn't expect. And Fishman and Bill Irwin and Lookout kind of out of place, as does the Mongol. In fact, Fishman's the star of this match because he's selling, he's ace. Uh, What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, this was really enjoyable. It was a nice, fast, Lucha-inspired opener. It was a hell of a lot different to everything else we'd been watching. It felt... I mean, I know it was a few years after the seventy, like the seventy-nine shows, but like the difference between the time periods is really noticeable. That's partly down to the production. If you've watched the any of the world-class wrestling documentaries, you'll know that um, the pr- production team. Um, were from a local uh, Christian station, I think it was, but they had to, they had the best available equipment, and Fritz von Erich put money into production like nobody else has. So you watch this, and there is three camera sets. So you have a hard camera and two roaming cameras. Um, the the I'm trying to remember the name of the commentator is Dave. Manning, yes, is one of the best. He's in kind of Gordon Solly level, but he doesn't commentate in the same way that Gordon Solly or Lance Russell even, um, or Dave Brown does in Memphis. He commentates like a fan, and it kind of gets a good connection with the audience. They spend a little money on getting good guys. Everyone can work. There is no slack hands on this entire show. You would not see anyone who's a bad wrestler. Fritz von Eric wouldn't stand for it. He'd be there for five minutes. And the baby faces are nice looking guys and the heels aren't. And that's a big thing. When I'm your core audience... The fact someone called the Mongol was very clearly Caucasian. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the level of casual racism is very high as well. It's Dallas in 1983. But you know when you got the idea for Hakim from... Yeah, definitely. Um, but when your core audience is 14 to 18-year-old girls, good-looking baby faces are no bad thing, is it? That's, that's, that's what you want. And you can tell how many women are, on this, are at this show just by the screaming for the baby faces. It's when like Chris Adams... It's a New Japan show. It is, but they're much more vocal, obviously. And it is like... It is. It, it's you look at the audience and it's teenage girls, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's what t- teenage girls have like good-looking young men for quite some time now. I understand, um, but yeah, that's and this match is a kind of nice little showcase kind of thing you want to get started with, isn't it? Like nice little match. The main angle is Chris Adams versus uh, the Mongol. They were trying to pop the crowd by having Chavo Guerrero and Jose Lothario in there. That's this is an old school. Southern technique, if you're wrestling close to the border, you put some luchadors on the card and it pops the crowd because obviously, you know, they want to go see their home, their, the style of wrestling they're used to. And there's plenty of Mexican people live in Dallas. Or I should say there are plenty of Tejanos and Mexican people who live in Dallas. Uh, you've got to be very careful in Texas about the difference between a Mexican and a Tejano. A Tejano is a person of Spanish descent whose family have lived in Texas since it was Spain. 
that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's they good. They also had the uh, big, like, big ending of Chavo Guerrero getting the first pinfall, like, victory yeah. over the Mongol. Yeah, which kind of they dumbed down the Chris Adams angle, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's not nearly any much as a threat as, um, as we think he was. Um, but yes, yes, it was. It was it was what it was. But it was a good match and it was enjoyable. But what's really Dallas about the next match is Buddy Roberts versus Iceman King Parsons in a hair versus hair match. Um, and it's, it's everything. The funny thing is, they, they tease this match and then they cut to um, uh, Jimmy Garvin versus... Um, uh, David Von Erich. Yeah, it was one of the Von Erichs. I couldn't remember which. Yeah, they cut to yeah. that and then come back to the hair versus hair match. After. Yeah, they did the promos. This is the, in real time. This did not happen in this order. <laughs> but yeah, the David is so weird. It is, but again, this would have been post production. They wouldn't have put it out on the night because then people wouldn't have bought tickets for it. They'd have done it like on the following Saturday on Dallas TV. But David Von Erich versus Jimmy Garvin. Whoa. That, there's a match. And there's two guys who can go. It was really good. <laughs> it is. 11 minutes and 29 seconds. The stipulations for the match were Jimmy Garvin uh, would have... Jimmy Garvin and Sunshine, his valet, would have to be the valets of David Von Erich for the day. And I've actually seen the TV show that happened after this and David made them... Uh, do all sorts of various humiliating things and like uh, empty out the the hay bales, move the hay bales and empty out the, the horse um, stables and uh, there's all sorts of sunshine walking through cow pats in high heels kind of tomfoolery as you'd expect. But it's really well done and Garvin is a brilliant, brilliant heel. I love Jimmy Garvin and David Von Erich is exactly what you want as your Texas heavyweight champion. He's a big, tough dude. He's good-looking. He can wrestle. He can move. But they're hitting each other really hard. They used to call World Class a kind of a three-quarter shoot. They, there was You didn't go to Dallas unless you could put up with the punishment. And these guys really knew how to throw it about. And you there was a strong consideration for David Von Erich as NWA World Heavyweight Champion down the line. And I think David would have been the perfect foil for that. He he had everything you needed. I mean, just look Which at how would... he how he sort of clashes with Garvin here. It's it's really damn good. Yeah, clearly um, work with like arseholeish heels. Which is of course what you're going to do as NWA Heavyweight Champion, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, and then it goes back as you said to the next match. There is none more Dallas match than Iceman King Parsons versus Buddy Roberts. <laughs> um, Buddy Roberts from Bad Street, Atlanta, GA, was one third of the Fabulous Freebirds. He was the technical wrestler of the Fabulous Freebirds. Terry was the muscle, Michael was the talk, and uh, Buddy was the actual guy who could. He was the he was the glue man who could keep the matches going. Uh, but as a singles wrestler, he was very, very good and understood how to work a crowd. 
Iceman Kings Parsons was a big star in Texas and a star in Memphis, not really anywhere else, but he was so over in Dallas, insanely over in Dallas. You know, he was not Von Erichs over and he wasn't quite Chris Adams over. He was the next tier down, but he was a very much in-demand babyface. The stipulations for this match was hair versus hair using the Freebird hair removal cream that was designed by friends of the Freemurs, as, as Buddy Roberts says in the promo, was not pharmaceutical. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but it sounds ace. Uh, what are your thoughts on this match and the angle? They just kind of made it sound like, oh yeah, we're dipping his head in acid. It's like, it won't get yeah, rid of head in the nice way, it's just going to burn it off. Yes. <laughs> it was a, again, it was a perfectly fine match. Like, I don't think there's a really a bad match on this card. It's all very sort of there's a couple, there's a match that's designed to be a car crash, but everything else you just kind of yeah it's very very smooth, very technical, very heavy. It's all really good, and as you said, Buddy was the one that really sort of knew how to wrestle. And yeah, it shows here as he sort of controls the match and works the crowd. Uh, funnily enough, many years later, Iceman King Parsons would turn heel and become the Blackbird as he joined the Freebirds. Um, but there you go. Um, so we'll move on to the next. The Blackbird. Of course you would. Also on this card was the Old Japan United, well, it would be actually the NWA, or United National Champion Jumbo Saruta would pin Ted DiBiase in 14 minutes and seven seconds. I can't imagine that being very exciting. 1983 Ted DiBiase versus 1983 Jumbo Saruta wasn't exactly a thrill fest, to be honest with you. Jumbo's all right. Yeah. Go on, John. It would have probably been kind of dull. Um, Giant Babber also pinned King Kong Bundy in 5 minutes and 24 seconds, defending his PWF championship. That I would have liked to have seen, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, me too. Bundy was awesome. Giant Babber was awesome. Bang them together, it would have been an entertaining five minutes. You literally Kimar- had Godzilla vs. King Kong and you didn't fucking show it. <laughs> <laughs> Kamala was in a handicap match in the handicap loser leaves town when he pinned Tony Yatsu and Mike Bond, a man Hussein, I think, just ran away, didn't he? Yeah, he was just like, sort this, I'm out. Which is reasonable. Yeah. Uh, but again, it it was to get uh, Kamala over as an unstoppable force. Was it, though? Which... Because after he won the match, uh, Bruiser Brody just came out and beat the shit out of him. <laughs> yes, to come and protect Mike Bond and set up a singles feud for Brody. Um, which was really interesting. Then, bizarrely, I am right, the order did... It was the heavyweight championship before the tag team championship match, wasn't it? Yeah, because they were making a big deal out of um, Bruiser Brody actually appearing. Well, that was he, it. He wouldn't appear. He's in Japan now. We don't. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need you. And then all of a sudden, oh shit, Bruiser Brody's here. We're dead. <laughs> no, we'll get to the main event in a second, but yes, that's basically what happened. And then the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Harley Race, who had just recently beat Ric Flair to end his first reign with the NWA Championship, went in and defeated Kevin Von Erich with 13 minutes and 22 seconds via disqualification. And this was actually an epic world championship match. Kevin had Harley beat in the first four minutes two or three times, but couldn't quite get the pin. 
And then Harley goes after the arm, and it's the story of the hometown hero trying to beat the best wrestler in the world with one arm. But the world champion can't beat the hometown hero. And I have a lot of time for Kevin Von Erich as a professional wrestler. He was exceptionally good, but never really got... He was kind of overshadowed by Kerry and David, and that's not really fair. Because um, he was just as good technically. Maybe just didn't quite have the charisma that the other two had. Um, but here against Race, he's absolutely bang on. He's firing on all cylinders, and Harley Race is freaking Harley Race. He's, he's as good as it gets ever. And this just is exactly what you need for this crowd at this moment in time to keep Harley's heat and the belt and to keep Kevin's heat and uh, get him away saving face. What's your thoughts on this, John? This was exceptional. Yeah. Like, I always sort of make the joke that I'm not very, like, up on my um, old school wrestling. But, like, this, this just goes above and beyond like what you want psychology's there the action's there you've got bloody kevin fighting with his arm and his trunks as a makeshift sling to yeah. just try and keep going as the ref sort of like you should really stop he's like sod that <laughs> trying to, it, it just keeps going it's so well sort of laid out it's very heavy hitting very difficult to watch at times just because of the bloody shots to the shoulder and the arm Obviously, it's oh, yeah. hard to race. You know what you're getting. It's it's amazing, and I I was actually quite fond of the finish because it was clever. It wasn't your typical dusty finish. It was high risk because um, which one was it? Was it another of the Von Erics came out? David. David. David came out to sort of try and get Kevin to see sense. He's like, "Stop! You're hurt." You're not going to wrestle again if you keep this going. And then Race just comes after him. And obviously David attacks him and that's it. Match is over. He's just cost Kevin. And it's it's mm. cleverly done because it's a heel champion doing a heel thing. Cleverly. Yeah, yeah. It's not just that, oh, I'm going to take a, ta- a, a count out and walk off. Or I'm going to hit you with the belt. or I'm yeah. going to have a weapon in me tights. It's, oh, no. Your own friend, your own family just screwed you. Well done. It's so nicely executed. (laughs) And they did sell. When Flair was champion, they sold that Flair dodged the Von Eriks. They didn't want to wrestle the Von Eriks. He avoided Texas as much as he possibly could. And that's the reason. That makes Kevin trying to break, go through the match with a broken arm. It sells the reason for it because Kevin is worried he won't get another shot at the NWA Heavyweight Championship. This may be his only time. Look how many other worthy contenders there are in Texas. It gets Kevin's story over. It gets the entire Texas roster over. And you close it out. Harley does the heel thing. He's still hated in Texas. And everyone's got heat. And that's how you keep moving. That's how you keep moving forward. And they gave him the next uh, contender because David laid down a challenge there and then, basically berating Race on the mic. Yeah, and it, it's it's just so good booking. And the booking comes from, um, oh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now, <laughs> Gary Gary Hart. 
Gary Hart was the booker for this. Gary Hart was the NWA booker for all of the Southeast. He looked after the booking for Florida. He looked after the booking for Texas. Uh, he, he looked after the booking a little bit for Paul Bosch, but he didn't like Paul Bosch. Paul Bosch wasn't a bit of a problem. Paul Bosch ran the, 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 the Texas office out of uh, Houston. Um, but he ran all of the the booking and the storylines and, and put talent in different places for different promotions. And his idea... Sorry, go on. Karen, I didn't you, were. You, you go, you was going to ask the question. No, no, it was... Because um, um, I did an interview with Dominic Greeny a couple of weeks back and he compared Kurt Bauer to Gary Hart and it kind of makes sense now. Yeah, I... Just based on how good the booking was here and how good Cart tends to do with it. Yeah, I Gary Hart had a very unique booking style, but everything clicked and everything was about forward motion. You know, he understood. Uh, he described like world class in the interviews that I've seen with him. You get young guys who are hungry, who can go hard, and you present it with a bit of class. It's not much. It's not difficult. That was that was his thing. And you, yeah, I can completely agree. MLW is very much in that mold. Obviously, they have the Von Erics as well, but you know, it's very much in that mold of sensible booking that highlights a lot of different people. And there's always something brewing. You always get one kettle boiling as another one goes off the boil. So at the moment, in this particular storyline in 1983, it's Harley Race versus the Von Erics. But you're only one shot away from the three birds and the von Erics again. You know, apparently the three birds and the von Erics literally feuded for four years. For four years, like you can't do that now. That's the thing; it worked because they continuously knew how to move it to the next level. Yeah, and here's the thing: the three birds weren't technically heels; they were just unpopular. Because if the Von Erichs were out of time and the Freebirds were in the main event, the crowd would rally behind the Freebirds. Except in this next instance. Except in this. Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. Your main event for the evening, Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Michael P.S. Hayes against Kerry Von Erich and Bruiser Brody for the Southern Area World Class American Tag Team Championships. And this is... A well-paced, well-organized main event. You're still in the middle of the Freebirds versus the Von Erichs feud. The Freebirds have the American Tag Team Championships. And Kerry, I can't can't remember what the the thing with Kerry was at the time, but he gets a title shot and he calls Bruiser Brody. And the Freebirds say Brody isn't reliable, he's not going to come, which was actually based on actions that Fans knew about Brody. Brody did all sorts of things that weren't particularly reliable and went into business for himself on a regular basis, like the night he wrestled Lex Luger in Florida and just no sold everything to the point where Luger had to run away because he wasn't sure what was going to happen. Wasn't that the cage <laughs> fight? Sorry? Wasn't that the cage fight? Yeah, there was, yeah. Luger had no idea what to do. I think Bel Alfonso was a referee and... Luger looks at Bill and what do I do? <laughs> Bill's like, I don't know. This has never happened before. And uh, yeah, Brody no sold everything for about five minutes. The, the fans were like, oh my God, 
Aluga had to figure out a way of getting out of the cage to to make the match work. And when they got to the back, Brody apologized to Luger. He said, I'm sorry, mate. It was it was it was the promoter I was angry with, not you. <laughs> this is the thing. Brody was an amazing talent, but you did things Brody's way. It was Oh yeah. <laughs> you, you were stuck you in were... there with Brody, not him stuck in there with you. Yeah, you, you were along for the ride. And there's few people who've managed to do that in such spectacular fashion. Abdullah the Butcher is one, but Abdullah did it in a quiet way. Um, Billy Robinson was another. He also did it in a quiet and very brutal way. You, you did you did what Billy wanted to do. But Bruiser was the absolute master of Smash Mouth politics. But that reputation preceded him when it came to um, this kind of thing. So he comes into Dallas as this red-hot babyface. And if you don't understand how red hot, is a heel everywhere else. But he comes into Dallas to make his debut appearance in Dallas. And they cheer uh, the hell out of him. And Mark Lawrence, who's the ring announcer, doesn't even know to where to announce him from. And Brody, because you can hear Brody just looks at Mark Lawrence and goes, Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Mark Lawrence is one of the best commentators and best announcers in pro wrestling. He's actually a Methodist minister now. You wouldn't believe. Um, and he described his time in the wrestling industry as the best thing that ever prepared him for a Methodist ministry. <laughs> I can completely believe that. <laughs> um, yeah, he he basically was, uh, he got a job at a TV show, and they said, we need a ring announcer for, for the wrestling on Saturday morning. Will you go? And he was like, yeah. And what happened is David Manning used to do the big shows like this one and do a lot of the TV cut-tos, and Mark Lawrence would do the ring announcing and then do the play-by-play. And that's that's how they went on. And this was early in Mark Lawrence's career. But, yeah, it, and the match starts, and it's the Freebirds versus Brody and Kevin Von Erich. All of them can work. All of them can talk. Terry Gordy versus Bam Bam. Sorry, Terry Gordy versus Bruder Bro- Bruiser Brody. That's a main event anywhere in the world. That's a shoot fest. That, that's, that's a shoot. That's stiff, you know, and they clobber each other. And Kerry's not far behind on that level of stiff. Michael was, was, he was a good worker. He wasn't a shooter by any stretch of the imagination. He could Michael keep himself was kind of there trouble. to do the character stuff. Yes, Michael was there was. to be the character one whilst everyone else beat the shit out of each other. And it's like, but again, it's just an example. Like Michael Hayes gets on the microphone because he's mad with Iceman King Parsons for for balding Buddy Roberts, so he challenges King Parsons to a hair match. So you're already on to the next main event before you've started with this one. That's how good this is. It is kind of like the blueprint of how you should be making a show, especially for the modern era. Like yeah. We have social this... media to do a lot of the heavy lifting for us, but this approach makes it feel more organic. You've got storylines bleeding into storylines that make all these sort of transitions from fight to fight across the weeks or months or however they did their shows work. Because it's yeah. like, you did this to me on my own, so I'm going to come after you next week. It's like, don't think I've forgotten about you. Your time's coming. It's it's something you could really easily emulate. Yeah, a think, lot of the time, 
only certain companies will take that approach. I think a lot of it's a lot of what AEW is trying to do, but they haven't got the flair yet. If that makes sense, AEW attempted it. MLW kind of get it. Uh, I think the thing is with AEW, it's based on a lot of what um, the Oklahoma promoter whose name suddenly escapes me, Bill, him, (laughs) Jim Ross's boss. It's based on a lot of the old Oklahoma UWF booking where you've got a lot of factions so you can run one faction off against another. And that's clever booking. And this is a similar kind of style. But everything on this card, Bill Watts, that's the person I was thinking of, this kind of card, everything matters. Every match on this card except the opener, but even the opener has something in it to set you up for next time. It starts one story, finishes it, and then starts you on the next. There's no resolution here. We're moving on. You know, you've had time to enjoy this moment, but we're moving on. So your next story is going to be this. You all right, John? (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I got distracted by something. (laughs) So, yeah, so everything builds onto something else. And there is times in Dallas history where something does slow down. So obviously Kerry winning the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship at uh, Texas Stadium is the the big moment. You're about a year away from that. David's not with us much longer after this. He goes back to Japan with Giant Baba and Jumbo Sarusa and Jenichiro Tenere. So it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of foreboding when you look at that main event and realize that Michael Hayes is the only one left alive. Um, for a start, and then you do go down the card, you realize, oh, yeah, Chris Adams is no longer with us either, is he? And you know, the, there was faults with the Dallas way of doing things because it was incredibly hard on bodies, and you had a lot of addictive personalities with an awful lot of how can you put it? Pharmacy Dallas, was, yeah. You know, there was a lot of drugs around in that particular era. You know, there was, you look, if you went and followed the big I roads, I 35 out of Austin, you would find speed shops. And when I mean speed shops, I don't mean for car parts, I mean uh, pharmacies that dealt with amphetamines legally. You know, that was all, all over Dallas, you know, that and the Texas kind of state at the time. If you read the Stevie Ray Vaughan biography, you would believe how easy it was to get hold of drugs in Texas in the 1980s, 70s, and 80s. And it was problems that compounded these people that were living the hard life. And it's the 80s wrestling story. Live a hard life, don't get much sleep, need something to keep you going, and that opens a gateway to a whole bunch of horrible things happening to you. Um, It happened into the 90s as well, though. Like, I read the uh, New Jack autobiography and you'd take coke just to keep yourself going to numb the oh, pain yeah. to sort of just be like right I've done this car crash of a match let's get on to the next one yeah I mean there was um, Dynamite's book is much the same and um, watched a world class documentary Gino Hernandez who was uh, Chris Adams tag partner when Chris turned heel Gino was the man he'd been the guy for Paul Bosch he was he was perfect. You know, he if you wanted a badass heel for your territory, Gino Hernandez 
was the guy. He was good looking. He could wrestle. He could. He knew how to get heat, and he could get tons of heat more than possibly anyone else in Dallas. But he used to have a part of cocaine that you would sniff from on a regular basis, like most people have cough sweets, you know. And that that was the trouble. And he died um, as results of a, a coke deal. You know, it was a mistaken identity over a coke deal. Uh, and there was about 13 wrestlers involved in the Memphis Territory who didn't have very long lives, much after the ter- Memphis, sorry, the Dallas Territory went away. Um, I, but I don't mean to dwell on bad stuff because there's loads of things that we could talk about Dallas with. But the actual nuts and bolts of the wrestling, it's the best of the shows we watch here easily. Oh, without uh, doubt. And it's the best of the regional Christmas specials or Christmas era editions. Uh, the last one we have to look at is the sublime to the ridiculous as we look at uh, uh, a primetime wrestling. Before there was Monday Night Raw, youngins, there was primetime wrestling from Stamford, Connecticut, which was an uh, a edited clip show of the best bits from Superstars Wrestling Challenge and some big-name matches from the video collections that WWE used to pour out on Monday nights. And it was on... Uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, so primetime wrestling. It was on the USA Network before Monday Night Wrestling, Monday Night Raw existed. Primetime was the flagship show. Really, it showed you off all the big superstars, had a lot of promos, and it was hosted by Bobby the Brain Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon. And it was kind of fun cartoon WWE wrestling in the 1980s. We The 1987 edition, Christmas edition, was what we launched, and... So the first time we've seen a Christmas tree at a Christmas wrestling show as Gino and uh, Bobby are sat in front of a Christmas tree. And it's the middle of the Andre Hogan feud when Ted DiBiase offers to buy the WWF Heavyweight Championship from Hulk Hogan. So there's lots of promos based around that. There is only two promos and one match on this entire show, I think. What are your thoughts on the presentation and the difference between... 1987, 1983, and 1980, and 1979. There's a hell of a lot more cuts and graphics in 1987. They're obviously kind yeah. of confident with their sort of video editing at this point. The cuts are a bit smoother. You've got graphics. You've got sort of side-by-side transitions. It's, it's all very sort of made for TV, whereas the sort of other ones were... We've just cut down the footage we have to make it digestible. This was yeah. purposely designed for like ad breaks, for TV, for everything was sort of designed to be where it was. And the big difference was, of course, that the WB did its own in-house production. The producers were actually told what would happen in the matches and who would win. Because that didn't always happen in the other territories, believe it or not. Um, you know, the they shot wrestling matches. The matches happened in front of them. As far as the producer was concerned, it was a sporting contest. Whereas WWE, uh, WWF, I should say, Vince McMahon had producers that explained exactly what would happen and why it would happen and where it would happen. So the producers actually had, and directors actually had time to shoot it properly, which is, you know, goes against all the rules of kayfabe but equally means you get a much more watchable television product. Um, 
Uh, and it's interesting how the promos worked as well. The first promo is Hulk Hogan being interviewed by Craig DeGeorge, who, believe it or not, would be a commentator for New Japan Pro Wrestling in the 1990s and was dreadful. Um, but yeah, and Hulk doesn't... It was a really bizarre promo because he goes on about, like, I could, I could be a millionaire, I could have my own house and a car in six garages. And then the worst bit was I could help all of those young... People who don't have opportunities in life. I could hold, hold those little hulksters who haven't got it mentally together upstairs. Yeah. And, and then he says, no, I'm not going to do it. So it's like, so you're saying you're not going to help mentally handicapped children. This I is an odd idea of what Babyface promo is about. At least he didn't say he was going to help a charity fight racism or something, right? Yes, or indeed trying to end autistic people. <laughs> but yes. It's like I used to like Hulk Hogan when I was when I was a kid, but now I can't even look at him without sort of cringing. It's that sort of thing where you come back to something you used to like and realize it's just shit. Yes, <laughs> I, I mean that's kind of Hulk Hogan at this point. I mean that's kind of the WWE in a hole for me at the moment. But bloody Hulk Hogan, especially it's. Yeah, I mean, the, the Ted DiBiase promo that comes after it, which was one of the old ones where he would get some schmuck from the crowd to do a seemingly easy task and then show them that they couldn't do it and not give them any money, was... Oh, the kid in the was, basketball killed me. That yeah. was hilarious. I was... It, was, it was standard DiBiase stuff, and it was standard mean heel stuff, and it worked really well. Million Dollar Man was the the best thing that could happen to Dead DiBiase because he I, he was a working heel. He wasn't naturally vicious as a wrestler, so being as a naturally vicious talker, he was brilliant. I love the fact you've got Virgil stood there next to him shuffling money because he didn't know what else to do. Well, yeah, because he didn't know what else to do. <laughs> Virgil, of course, named Virgil after Dusty Rhodes, whose real name was Virgil. It was just all such good fun. Like Yeah. Ah. Innocent, innocent times, wasn't it? This, you know this is just Ebenezer Scrooge moment for a Christmas show. It's like you want exactly. money. <laughs> you don't get money and get back to work. This oh, yeah, this I mean been a parody of Christmas Carol with Ted DiBiase as Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm sure they did. I'm absolutely positive they did at some that, point. That has to be a thing. It would just write itself. <laughs> I mean, this. I mean, obviously, this is this is the point where it's a good, wholesome, simple storylines when everyone was on the roids. But uh, yeah, it it did it did what it said. It set things up nicely. And then the main event of this particular segment was a world tag team title match, uh, which featured the Islanders versus Strike Force, Rick Martel and Tito Santana, and it was your kind of bog standard 80s title match that was on TV because it kind of was really good for 20 minutes and then there was a count out finish and that kind of like went for everything to the end nobody lost any face the titles didn't the titles didn't change hands everyone can continue and it was like oh <laughs> i forgot how many of these count out finish title matches i saw in the 1980s and 1990s and i was like oh because you know, out for this one, it's not even the match it, was 
bad. It was just that I was just kind of like, eh. Literally, all four guys can go, like the clappers. There isn't oh, much better. And Bobby, Man- Bobby Enon is the greatest professional wrestling manager of all time. There is nothing bad about this whole formula, but you put the ingredients in and it comes out the oven flat. It's There's like no... they were told to be as dull as possible. It's like, right, they're getting this for free, just meh. There's no bicarbonate of soda in this match, is there? It just kind of goes, oh, that was pleasant. It's just like, it. back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, done. There's no... Yeah. And it's a shame, because as you said, all four guys can go. I know for a fact they can go. Hell, you've got Haku in there. Yeah. The guy it. could bite you... someone's nose off and beat them with it. Like, I want to <laughs> see vicious Haku. Here, you, you might. It's... Hey, New Japan have said they're bringing back the Battle Royal for Wrestle Kingdom. You might get to see that Haku next week. I got, I got to see Haku fight Schlack in Florida in front of about <laughs> 100 people in a ring with chains at ICW No Holds Barred. That match went to a double sort of just no contest because they wouldn't stop throwing chairs at each other. <laughs> it was amazing. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Wrestle Kingdom, by the way, we will be doing our Wrestle annual Wrestle Kingdom preview next week at some point to get you genned up for January the 4th and 5th, uh, which which will happen soon. Well, that kind of I'm wraps up. I'm loop on New Japan. I'm going to have to do a super catch-up before Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah, it, don't worry. It'll be fine. You don't need You need to watch the last match of the G1, the World Tag League final, the Best of Super Juniors final. You can do it in three matches. Nothing else has happened. Anyway. Final. I think you're all right, then. Ew. If you get the World Tag final watch, that'll be kind of cool because it's a really good match. And Aruma versus Desperado, you need to see that because it is. it could have been the yeah, best that's, singles match. that's been on my hit list for like the past week and I've just not had time. It's an epic tale. Anyway, that pretty much wraps us up for our Christmas special. So thank you for listening. My name's James Troopany. He's John Dinsdale. Where can we find you on your socials, John? You can find me at Twitter handle John Deathman. I am the writer of Gore. And yeah, that Twitter is a gateway to everything. Writing, rambling, opinion... You name it. I recently just put up part one of an interview with the bulldozer Matt Tremont. Part two is out either tonight or tomorrow, depending on the circumstances. And yeah, it just check out Steel Chair for more deathmatch writing, MLW writing, just writing, writing. I don't know. Just check out Twitter. You'll find everything there. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll get a piece from me on. Uh, I'm reviewing that Super J Cram book soon. Um, you can go buy it. Uh, Matt has it available on his Twitter at Wrestling Shining. So, so it's Shining Wizard D on Twitter. You can find him there. He is. You might have to pester him for it. He is I renowned. It. Not I for not. For not like, I got it on my Kindle, and it it was really nicely designed for it. It's yes. He, that's everything he does himself. He does all the designs for Chris Jarrett's books too, because they're such brothers. A good artist. He, as yes. we were recording this, he. He released a drawing of Rina Yamashita, and it just looks awesome. 
the book is really cool as well. It goes back to covering probably the last ooh, 30 years of junior heavyweight history in Japan because it covers the IWGP, AJPW, and Global One and Crown Championships, so the big three companies. Kind of goes, uh, you can't do all 47 um, WWWA uh, AJW champions because that would be silly, but he does look at the top 10 champions of the of the AJW era and he goes in depth with Stardom's World of Stardom Championship um, and the Neo High Speed Championship. Jazzy Gabbert was very happy to discover she's in the book. <laughs> and <laughs> it's I such, it's I described it like an info dump, but it's an info dump in the best way because it's one of those things where you could either read it all in one go or you could read like two bits and still come away fulfilled. Like I read yeah. it in like two sittings because I just got hooked on it. It's it's so interesting it, learning about like companies I don't really watch. Like yeah, I, I mean, I've never yeah. been big in on Noah purely because I don't have the time to commit to it. All Japan is very hit and miss with me. Like I enjoy a lot of All Japan stuff, but there's a lot of it I've never seen. And then just reading about the people in it. And some of the people I know who were in other companies now, how they got to where they were. Mm. It's all really damn interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. It's uh, it's it's just a really interesting book. And, of course, with things like All Japan as well, you're, um, you're going back into history. And there's a lot of politics in it with Naimichi Marafuji and Misawa. And people like Fuji, who said you, you kind of like don't realize that's such a sway on the company. But when your roster goes down from like 25 to two, you're going to have a sway on the roster. So yeah, it's a really interesting book. You can find me, by the way, we, are, we should close out the show. My, you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter and on Patreon and Facebook of the Troopany Show, where you can keep the Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Take care. Have a great Christmas, or I hope you enjoyed your Christmas, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.